another episode of Biohacking Beauty. I'm very excited to spend the next hour with you and with my esteemed guest that I have on today. Her name is Zora Benhamu, and Zora is an amazing person. She's a gerontologist, but she's also passionate specifically about aging and longevity. And really what I love about her that is her miss- mission to disrupt the ageist stereotypes in social media. She's also the host of the Hack My Age podcast. And that podcast is one of my favorites. It focuses on biohacking for women over, over 50. She also has a, a wonderful website, hackmyage.com. In general, an amazing person. She's 52 years old. She's a digital nomad. She traveled to over 50 countries. She lived in age. She speaks six languages. She's an author of the Longevity Master Plan, which is an amazing book, and a cookbook, Eating for Longevity. So she's a real wealth of knowledge, and uh, there is a, a wonderful community around her in Hack My Age. So through her social media, through her website, she reaches over 100,000 people with her message, and that is growing very, very quickly, and I can say it from firsthand, watching her grow. A little bit about her, she received a master's in gerontology in uh, University of Southern California, a very prestigious university. She's a certified sports nutrition coach. She completed the Menopause for Athletes program by Dr. Stacy Sims. And she's also a certified breathwork instructor under Oxygen Advantage Advanced. She's an advanced uh, breathwork instructor uh, there. We are going to dive deep into what it means to aim for longevity for women specifically over 50. That looks completely differently as far as women and men in that stage. We're gonna dive deep into skincare, nutrition, habits, ageism, a wonderful episode to tune into. We're gonna learn what is a gerontologist and what are they discovering about the impact impact of attitudes of aging, including beauty on health. Uh, For example, people with positive attitudes live 7.5 years longer. The correlation between beauty and lifespan, skin health, self perceptions of beauty, personal hygiene, taking care of oneself and as an important factor. What is ageism? and the impact it has on our attitudes of aging and health. Reducing ageism increases uh, healthy life expectancy, so that's something we do wanna uh, learn about. And healthy life expectancy also reduces ageism. So it's bi-directional. Beautiful episode, I really hope you will love it. Before we dive into the episode, I'd like to remind everyone that they can subscribe, so I love it if you took two seconds out of your day and subscribe to this podcast, not only so you can make sure you don't miss an episode, it also helps the algorithm and other people are gonna see it and are going to join our community as well. And last but not least, I would like to remind you that this podcast is brought to you by the company I co-founded and I'm the CEO of, which is called Young Goose. And it's uh, the world's first biohacking skincare company. What we do is we aim to lower the functional age of the skin, mainly through the NAD precursors and supporting molecules in our care and eye care. 
and then we aim at targeting specific things with our serums. So whether it is wrinkles, pigmentation, laxity, acne, hydration, all of those things, we biohack them through our serums and our number one seller, the hyperbaric mask that mimics the effects of hyperbarics and you go to sleep with it. That is kind of ramping everything up. But yeah, without further ado, please welcome the great and powerful Zora Benhamel. So Zora, welcome to the Biohacking Beauty Podcast. It's such, such a pleasure having you on. So just to start a conversation, obviously this podcast is, you know, like we, we spoke about off air, this podcast is, is trying to persuade people to lead a healthy lifestyle because they're interested in looking better for the long run or the short run. So obviously as a gerontologist, as an expert in the field, why should people care about, you know, gerontology as a whole if their goal is to look better? How do you make that connection? How do you convince someone? So there's a lot of people wouldn't put that connection between gerontology and take, taking care of yourself looking good. You know, we, it's about, it's not about being vain, mm-hmm. right? And, and, and vain necessarily isn't, isn't a bad word. But it's important to take care of yourself if you want to live a long life or a healthy mm-hmm. life or a health span as we, as we talk about this. So taking care of yourself and your self-hygiene gives you a reason to wake up in the morning, put on your makeup, take a shower. Mm-hmm. Uh, for some people, it's just literally getting out of bed and, and brushing their teeth. And some people can't even do that. So we're, we're, there's a whole spectrum of beauty, you know, just from waking up and showering all the way up into really doing some of the, you know, a lot of, a lot of self-care. Yeah. But is very important because your how you feel inside is, is and how you feel outside on the outside both inside outside mm-hmm. is is going to reflect your health so it's a chicken and egg you know what's more important to you but they're both very very important yeah definitely and i and i think they're obviously intertwined right us as human beings we're not very good intuitively in grasping the impact of continuous small decisions, right? We're not very good at understanding that if we're going to stop and have lunch at McDonald's, like once nothing's going to happen, but if we do it continuously, obviously we all saw the uh, Super Size Me movie or whatever that is, like in 30 days, you're going to basically change your body as a whole. So what are some of the, you know, some of the decisions that you see that have cumulative impact or what are some of the, um, you know, obviously how does research look at a healthy decision-making as far as the aging goes? Well, yeah, decision-making is, it depends how you define healthy Mm decision-making, but taking, you know, that those, those steps to 
choose the right foods or to get to bed on time or to exercise. I mean, in gerontology, it's actually, biohacking is way beyond um, the gerontology aspect. You know, in gerontology, we're just kind of looking at the general population. Mm -hmm. If we can just get them to change their diet and exercise, that would be great. But the real spectrum is is the sleep and the stress management and, and all that. And so we need to we, you know, it is the research shows, yeah, definitely. If you are able to manage the stress and have a healthy diet, whatever that means to you, mm-hmm. get some exercise, and uh, you know, the sleep component is super important. But to me, it seems a lot of it boils down to the stress aspect because if you're in a stressed out state, or if you have anxiety, or if you have depression, depression is a big thing that we talk about in gerontology as as we age depression is is a, a big thing. You think, oh, it's just teenagers or young people going through their lives. But do you know who is the most successful at actually suicide rates, for example? Suicide rates. Mm-hmm. Who, are, who are most successful at that? I'd probably say like uh, tribal societies in, in Africa or, you know, Asia. Well, yeah. Well, so actually, unfortunately, it's not enough studies done in Africa. And this is one of my questions. Uh, it was a big beef with my my professors is that, you know, what's going on? You know, they'll tell us what's happening in Asia, mm-hmm. what's happening in, in, in America. And so in, in I studied at USC and it's an American university. They tried to bring in the international aspect. But so we don't know really for Africans, but for the research shows uh, is that white older Americans, mm. I mean, white, sorry, white older men, sorry, in Americans, white older men are more at risk of depression and suicide, and they're most successful mm. at it. You know, maybe younger people actually make more attempts. Women uh, also make attempts, but they're just not as successful as the men. So, in fact, that's a category that's really, really important in terms of depression and suicide. So, we need to uh, not ignore that population as, as well. Do you think? Part of it, like especially if we're differentiating younger and older people attempting suicide, do you think that at one point in time we're going to categorize it as completely different types of suicide attempts? One is like obviously a call for help and another one is is a life-ending decision or a decision to end your life? I don't see the difference. I, I, they're, they're both... They both want to end their lives. I'm not sure I understand. Okay, so yeah, my question is, are they both trying to end their lives? You know, when you were talking about younger people, for whatever reason, maybe we have less of an understanding of what life is, (laughs) what we're trying to end for that matter. And that, you know, we might be in a place where things seem so bleak. We want things to change. And that is the most drastic thing we can do. But we're not as decisive as far as taking all the necessary steps in order to complete, you know, to be successful. And on the other hand, maybe you don't have the, um, the means to, to be really successful, whatever that is, you're not going to be left alone as much. Obviously, like if you're older, you're alone, you're going to end your life. Or if you're a teenager ending your life and your mom is waiting downstairs for you to eat, you know, lunch or whatever, there, there are some like different elements there that play a role into success. Actually, you're right. And and I, I'm not an expert in, in suicide. Mm-hmm. So in fact, I would it kind of reminds me, yeah, perhaps, you know, 
younger younger people want the attention mm-hmm. and they don't quite completely fulfill that I, I really don't know so I don't want to I don't want to say that but that could be could see that uh, and yes and and so they're 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 the reason why they're successful is I, I can't answer that yeah. but we we do need to pay attention to that and that's and that's a reflection I mean when you're depressed well, what happens you stop taking care of yourself mm-hmm. you're not gonna go out you're not gonna put on your makeup you're not gonna take care of your skin you're not gonna shower you probably barely eat mm-hmm. and so yeah I mean once you if you are with somebody or know somebody who's going through depression and you see this the day you see them start to take care of themselves or shower or go out and put on some nice clothes you go oh thank yeah. god they're they're okay they're looking good they're looking healthy mm-hmm. right and their skin is you'll you'll see it in their skin in their eyes in their hair and that's why it's important, you know, when you say looks, it's not just about being vain. Mm-hmm. It's about, it's a really a reflection of your health. Yeah, I agree. I think it's, uh, well, I couldn't agree more. Obviously, the skin is the, um, is, a, is the organ that is going to sacrifice itself as far as, as your health goes, right? Like your skin is, going, is obviously sacrificing itself, defending you for, from outside aggressors, UV, you know, pollution, EMF and on and on but and that is why if we're not healthy our skin's not going to be healthy because it is going to sacrifice itself for the general you know wellness of the body but on the other hand yeah you're right where we are taking care of ourselves obviously our skin is something that is very apparent for well it is kind of what we're putting out there no pun intended and uh, if we don't care about that then we're not gonna. We're not gonna look our best. Is it something that you can also infer as far as the other side of the spectrum? Do people who socialize more, they have a better, you know, social life. They're happier. Do they normally take extra good care of themselves, or is it like a middle point where it kind of evens out? I'll, First I'll, of all, I'll, you're... I'll ask it like in a different yeah. way. So we we were talking about people who are who are not feeling good within their body, about themselves, about their life, etc. And it is obvious, obvious that it translates into obviously less good skin care and overall care, right? Mm-hmm. Most of the time when we're, when we're looking at an at a extreme scenario, what we're trying to do is, is magnify normal behavior so we can look at the end result of it. But we are trying to understand relationship between happiness, content, and self-care. Sometimes I feel that self-care isn't not for me, not for people around me, is not like is congruent with, with happiness up to a certain degree. What I mean is, you know how people who grew up in poverty, suddenly they have some money, they're going to spend money on their outside appearance and they're going to you know buy expensive things, etc. But at some point, when you have so much, you know, the, 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 there's a book called the, the Millionaire Next Door or something like that, where at some point you have so much money, you're, you're basically uh, disenchanted by the, your ego is not attached to showing off anymore for that matter. So what is the relationship that you're seeing between taking care of yourself and happiness? Does it, are you, do you need to suffer to some extent to care about how you look? And then it kind of, you know, kind of 
lowers if you're really, really happy because you don't care about what the environment thinks? Or is it something that you see kind of grow as as much as the, the person cares about themselves? Am I, am I, I don't know if I'm explaining myself correctly. Well, I, I think you're trying to say that is there a correlation between happiness and the way you look? And the way you look and, and the way you take care of yourself, et cetera. Yeah. And the way you, yeah, maybe how much effort you make in terms of taking care mm-hmm. of yourself. And and then there's sort of alluded, does does money have anything to do with this? Is this, is the money going to make you happier? And then you're going to have, mm-hmm. you're going to look better, et cetera, et cetera. So definitely, you know, we've seen people who have plenty of money and they're not taking care of themselves because usually they're not happy. Mm-hmm. So I think there is that correlation between your happiness and taking care of yourself. If you're in a, in a good mood and you, and you have your, your time schedule set and you have your routines and, and, and you want to look good and you, you spend that time. And, 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 you know, we always kind of assume that self-care means putting on makeup and taking a shower and, and dressing up nicely. But self-care is also about being kind to yourself, mm-hmm. about being patient with yourself and not criticizing yourself all the time or getting to bed on time or watching a sunset once in a while. There's all these things that are self-care or, or you know, it's getting a massage once in a while, but it's it's about it's so much more than what I think we're we're, we're alluding to or what people think. So it is it is a big thing. But I do we know that we know that when you're happier, you it reflects on the outside. Mm-hmm. But I did a very interesting conference that I organized in Hong Kong, 2017, I think, and I had five experts and different my five longevity pillars. And there was one who was a Chinese medicine doctor, and her pillar was beauty. Mm-hmm. Okay, so beauty as a Chinese medicine doctor it was interesting what she was going to say. And so what she was saying is to actually yes, take care of yourself on the outside, even. If you're not happy and you're not feeling well, put on some makeup or go outside, make that effort, and you will feel happier. You will feel better inside because we always talk about from the inside out, right? Inside out. But she kind of reversed it. And I thought that was super interesting that she said that. And 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 I think we've all been in a in a in a dumpster or moody blue blue mood or something. And we said, you know what, I'm just gonna make that effort. I'll just, you know, get get outside and 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 do my best and and try to have a good appearance. And then suddenly things just kind of turn around. Not every time, but you know, we've all had, I think, those those moments. So I think it it's it's bi-directional, mm-hmm. right? And I think this is, you know, I'm not an expert in depression or mental health, but when we see people who are depressed, we, we see, well, they're not going to go out. They really don't want to go out. And I think it's really, really hard for them. And they get to the point, whenever I ask somebody who who's gone through depression, I said, well, you know, how, how do you get out of this? And they just, some of them just say, you know, you, you have to take those small steps and literally get out of the house. And they do have to put on some clothes, right? Or they have to, you know, take a shower. And then it just kind of, you know, comes, you know, bit by bit. Not this is just the, the the few people that I've spoken to who've gone through it, and I thought that is super interesting. So it's again bi-directional. Yeah. Uh, I think they do go hand in hand. But where is that point? I'm not really sure. I agree. I think you know Tony Robbins is very is really you know big on changing, um, like creating a fluctuation in in the environment or in yourself in the in your mood or whatever 
by, you know, constantly trying new things, new attitudes, etc. And that is something obviously it doesn't work all the time. Like if you're going to try and do the same thing over and over again, it's not going to be, it's not going to snap you out of whatever, you know, situation you're, you're in. You have to kind of try different things, you know, constantly. So you, you get, you know, a different change in paradigm, change in, in um, attitude or whatever. But what we're, we've been talking about here is more on the actual steps that are individual, right? It, it is individual from a person to a person. What they, you know, one person likes putting makeup, the other one won't. They're going to like to put creams on or they're going to like to, you know, whatever that may be, go for a run, whatever makes them feel like they're taking care of themselves. But what is global is, or as far as like research go, is that there is specific data that shows increase in lifespan through positive mood, right? What is what does the data show us? How can we incentivize something to find their someone, excuse me, to find their own way to have a positive attitude? What's the end goal? There's a very interesting research study, and I'll have to pull it out. I, I can send it to you, mm-hmm. and it's um, it'll come to me who 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 wrote this. I think it's Beck. Um, so, anyways, he said, well, these well these researchers they studied older adults, Mm -hmm. and they asked about their attitudes towards aging. And they asked them, well, you know, is it a good thing, a bad thing, positive, negative? And what they found was those who had positive attitudes towards aging, you know, it's not such a bad thing, I'm going through it, or I'm happy, or et cetera, then they lived seven and a half years longer than those who had the negative. And that's pretty, that's pretty significant. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just, and, it, and when you think about it, it, may, it makes sense. And, and there's another very interesting researcher, Paul Nash, who did a, a great study. And he came up with this model of, it's called AIR model. It's called acquisition, internalization, and reinforcement. And so, so these have to do also with your attitudes towards aging. And they start from about six years old, when we see how old, you know, older adults are or how they're treated or how our parents treat their own parents and et cetera. And we start to formulate these ideas of what it means to get old. And then by the time we, you know, that's sort of the acquisition phase. And then we, by the time we start to feel some of these aging effects, such as gray hair or wrinkles, or we are feeling tired or we're walking slower or we have a pain, we go, oh, I must be getting old, mm-hmm. okay? And so you're internalizing these things. But what happens is that if you take this a little bit too far mm-hmm. in a negative way and you start to behave, you really internalize this in a negative way where you are giving up on sport, you know, oh, I, I'm getting old, I have some pain and I don't need to exercise. I've got to slow down. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you're like 50 years old or something, you're like, well – no, you're going to actually age faster if you don't do these things that are going to help you live longer. And then what's happening is you start to behave like an older person a little bit too early, and you are reinforcing this into society mm-hmm. so that those younger people see, oh, you know, you're supposed to shuffle when you walk, or you're supposed to be a hunchback when you get older, or you're supposed to be crabby, or whatever negative stereotypes you decide to put out there. And so then that creates these ageist stereotypes and we, we're we trying to break these. This is, yeah. this is what gerontologists do is try to break those, those stereotypes because they are negative and they will shorten your lifespan. They will create a lot of problems for society, for the government, for the health budget, for everything. So we 
we really need to be aware of our attitude towards aging. And you can, it doesn't mean you have to dye your hair and get Botox. I mean, it's just, I'm okay. Whether you decide to do that or not, that's, that's, you got to have a positive attitude. So if you are happy, you embrace your gray hair and you say, I'm just happy with my wrinkles. It doesn't mean you're letting yourself go. You're still taking care of yourself many other ways. You just don't care about that. That's perfectly fine. And you have a positive attitude. If you say, you know what, I'm going to feel better and I'm going to just be happier and get to the gym more often if I do Botox or dye my hair, Who, you know, that's fine too. It doesn't matter. It's just the attitude. What is going to give you that positive attitude so that you actually live longer and healthier? Yes, I agree with you, especially so again, like anyone who cultivates a better self-image again is, is however they do it, however they, whatever tools they choose to, to utilize in order to do it. I, Again, I fully support that, and I believe that's the that's the main goal, right? Mm-hmm. But we are also seeing that the appearance, so the per, the age that you are perceived as, so how the, how old basically you look, can, mm-hmm. does have a correlation to things like health span, longevity, overall health, biological age, which is different than chronological age, right? So we yes. are seeing uh, some correlation there. So I, I want to talk a little bit about this correlation because sometimes mm-hmm. I'm going to meet people who are saying, uh, well, this correlation is because beauty comes from the inside and you know, as the healthier you are, the better you look, et cetera. And some other people are saying it is more attitude-based. You know, you're basically displaying self-care, which would translate then to the inside. I believe the, the truth obviously is somewhere in the middle, but what are you seeing as far as what is science seeing as far as the correlation between how we look and our bi- biological age or you know life ex- expectancy, et cetera? Well, yes, I think the way you look, it definitely is it, we've we have enough studies to show that it's related to longevity yeah. in terms of health. Like when you take two tw- twin studies, for example, mm-hmm. are are very often done, and you'll have same DNA. And you have one looking much younger than the other because they're taking care of themselves or they're not out exposed to the sun so often, or maybe they didn't have a, an adverse childhood event, you know, or experience mm-hmm. that, that, that changed their life course and changed actually their DNA and their, sorry, the, the genetic expression. And so then they go on the spiral downhill. So Two same people, same DNA, and then they can look very, very different. Mm-hmm. And we can see one is healthier, lives longer than the other, even though they're they're twins. And then you can also have people who, I mean, you see people's biological age and their chronological age can be very different as well. And that's genetic as well. So so we we do see, and it's mostly through twin studies that it's it's quite clear that the way you look in terms of you know, just, you know, that person's taking care of themselves. They're not smoking mm-hmm. and, and they're taking, you know, exercising and doing that self-care and they're living a little bit longer. So there is no doubt. And I think, like you said, there is that sort of middle ground as well, where there's, they're both important. There's part where genetic does play a role and you can be horrifically ugly and, you know, you're living an amazing life, mm-hmm. right? And you're living super long and that's, you know, you're smoking and you're drinking and, you know, we all know those people who can get away with everything. They don't take care of themselves and 
they're living really long. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's genes. And we always say, you know, um, genes um, load the gun, mm -hmm. but lifestyle and diet and all that stuff takes, pulls the trigger. So, and it's about, people would say between 10 and 20% is genetic in terms of how long you live and the other, you know, 80, 80, 90% more or less. However, when you look at those people who are burning the candle at both ends and doing everything that they're not supposed to do and living long, well, they may have maybe only 10 or 20% of it is genetic, but those are pretty powerful genes. Yeah. And that's just winning the lottery. Yeah. I think we should, at some point, we're going to do an episode about those genes like FOXO4 or APOE4, for example, on the other side of that spectrum. Genes that either age you faster or slower. And definitely, it's funny that you're mentioning like 10 to 20% is genetics and the rest is how you handle those those genetics or what you're doing along your life, because we can see the same thing happening in skin aging specifically. So there is something extrinsic and intrinsic skin aging. So intrinsic would be chronological aging, but from the point of epigenetics, our, our, our genes are not functioning as well anymore. We're creating less collagen and et cetera. And, ex, um, and in the, the adverse of that, extrinsic aging would be like exposure to UV damage or pollution, et cetera. And we're seeing that 80% of skin aging is extrinsic. So we can see a lot of correlation there. I think a lot of the correlation is also because, especially like twin, twin studies, things like that, it is even more clear that we have some program that's running as far as like responses. If this is going to happen, that's how our body is going to respond. But, but obviously the, the calls for responses, the things we're going through are, are what determine how well we're going to function, right? People, you know, in the industrial revolution, when they were working in, in uh, coal mines, they were exposing to, exposed to a lot of pollution, etc. obviously lived 50 was a ripe old age, right? And today, 50 years old, we, we consider it the, uh, the height of, of a person's life. So definitely, we can see it also de facto. Do you think the, um, the attitude towards, towards aging or age or ageism has changed because uh, life expectancy has changed as well? How do we do, how do we adjust, you know, as a society to the fact that people are living longer and functioning at a, at an older age? Yeah, we need to combat ageism big time. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's one of the most serious isms in that sense. It's the biggest problem in terms of isms because it's generally accepted. Mm -hmm. It's people think it's okay to say you look good for your age. <laughs> Right. It's like, okay, why don't I just look good? Right. Yeah. So, and, and we need to stop that. Mm -hmm. And we need to stop people from saying, oh, you know, 60 is the new 40 or 50 is the new 30. Like just be 60 and show everybody what friggin' awesome 60 looks like. Like stop saying, you know, this is part of the problem. So we need to stop this because we are, yes, we are living longer. So yes, we are going to have people, uh, more people on the uh, older people on the planet now who are staying around a lot longer. And so we are using more healthcare resources and we are seeing more people sick and all, et cetera, et cetera. So if we want this is going to be, this is a huge burden on a government and a, and a healthcare system. So we need, if we want to save the budget mm -hmm. and we want to, you know, on terms and not only just let's help people live longer, but, you know, we want to have these people healthy, mm -hmm. right? And we want them to contribute to society. And this is where a big, big problem is because we're not 
integrating older adults in society. When somebody gets old, we just shove them to the side or put them in a, in a community or put them in a hospital and and that's it. And we not we don't see these people. We fire them and these are these are valuable resources. People who are older have experience that younger people don't have. Maybe there is some physical or cognitive decline, but we can shift. Mm -hmm. and we can also, you know, uh, we don't need to, we, it's like pivoting at work, right? Maybe you can't do this. Uh, you can't be the best uh, soccer player on the team now. Now you maybe got to go to coaching or now you you can do other things. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't mean you have to get out of the world and be fired and you're done. So we want to keep these people integrated into society, but we also need to show them. I think there's, there's two responsibilities. One is society and the government and people and their attitudes to older adults. And the other one is, yeah, the older adult needs to show up as well. Mm -hmm. Like you need to be taking care of yourself and you not uh, don't fall into a rut and you know, and you can still work and you can still do plenty of things. And, you know, that is the responsibility of the, of the older adult as well. So if you can show up in a good condition and show that you are still valuable as well, then you're more likely to be accepted into society. And, and then you're going to be in a healthier position, less of a burden on, on society or the healthcare system. And it just all spirals in a, in a very positive way. So, but that is the responsibility of, of two different components. Yeah, I agree. It's funny. Uh, it's funny that there is ageism definitely, but, um, most of the uh, the leaders that the world chooses is the same age that uh, that uh, we also subject people to to obviously to forced retirement, etc. At some some point, so is there is definitely um, uh, dissonance there, and I think also there is there is um, if we look at the way that we evolved or or our genetic blueprint, we are only animals, and us included, we're only valuable to the genetic pool normally when we're at when we're at a childbearing age right or life-giving age and normally after that the, the uh, animal kind of quickly disappears quickly dies i think humans the reason that we have the ability to live for so long after we are not uh, active contributors to the uh survival of our species is because of that ability to contribute on, in different ways and in more diverse ways and in, a more, in more ways of people who carry ancient knowledge and passing it on. That allowed, obviously through a genetic uh, prism, genetic point of view, allowed us to extend the life expectancy after, after again, like uh, being uh, active uh, participants in, in uh, the genetic pool. Because and, and we're kind of designed to play different roles as we grow older. And we wouldn't have like 80-year-old people if we are not designed to be a, an active member of society at that age. I think we're genetically built to be a, a, an active member. If not, we're going to die. That's nature. I mean, it is what it is. But you're, you're obviously a, a, a nomad, right? You, you travel around the world. Do you see countries that are doing it better than other than us? than us here in the United States or the Western world? 
Well, when it comes to ageism, there are certain yeah cultures that I see and and research has shown as well that are more accepting of older adults and usually they're in Asia mm-hmm. where the older adult is is revered for their wisdom and they're respected and not everyone I meet plenty of people who are don't want to respect their parents or their grandparents and they say they're a big pain in the butt and and uh, and and they but they still it's actually it's, uh, the family bond is so strong in some of these cultures that they're there anyways, whether they like it or not. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the Western cultures, we're like, you know what, I'm just going to move or I won't see my parents or I won't take care of them. It's just not as ingrained. But but there is tend to be more of a, a the respect, but also but but also genuine, mm-hmm. genuine. And I and I was very interesting. There were a lot of Asians in my class in gerontology and all the courses, gerontology courses. And I'd always ask them, and they were much younger. And I said, "What well, you know? Why are you studying gerontology?" And they said very often, well, either they worked with older adults or with their grandparents. And they said, "I my grandma raised me and." I just absolutely loved her and I loved her friends and older adults. And, and there was this really positive experience to, to older adults mm-hmm. that I didn't see very often with other people. And so, but in my, in my, in my own travels as a nomad, you did see this. There was one very curious experience that I had that I, I'm still on the fence about, uh, is in Bhutan. Mm-hmm. Have you been to Bhutan? No. The only thing I heard is that it one of the you know measurements of the success of the country is the happiness of its population, right? Yes, they are known for their happiness index. And so when I went there, a guide took me to a temple, and so you, that's what you do—you go visit temples. And and I saw all of these older people, uh, I would say probably late 60s until their 90s, walking around, taking a circle, walking around a circle around this temple as they were exercising and then just sort of socializing and hanging out. And I asked God, I said, what, what's going on here? And she's, there's so many, they're all here. And it's not like mass or something. And it turned out to be like a daycare. Like that's the way they take care of their older parents, but these kids have to work. Mm-hmm. Their older older children, right, have to go to work. So they drop off their parents, their grand, you know, the, the grandparents at this place. And they force them to stop working. They said they're no, 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 no. They don't want their parents to work. They've worked all their life. Whether they like it or not, they have to stop and we want to put them here in this social experience. And I just thought, well, what if they want to work? They said, no, no, (laughs) that's not the way it's supposed to be. And so I'm a little bit, I didn't, I didn't really like that answer because I thought, well, if I'm an older doll, I don't want to, I want to be working. If I want to work, I want to work. If I want to be with my friends and I'll be with my friends, but don't drop me off at a daycare. And I, you know, it's a, again, it's a very different society and it's a very different way. And But the way they looked at it is absolute respect, with love. They want the best for their parents. So they did it with the best intentions. I'm just not sure if the intentions are are the best. That's all. Yeah, definitely what, what, what you know, a lot of gerontology is about is kind of trying to find, you know, recipes for a happier world, right? But, but lo- concentrating on on doing it through caring for the for for people at, close to the to the uh, to the third 
part of their life to the later third of their life. And I think people, as we said before, experiencing decline when something changes inside, your attitude changes inside, the physical decline is also imminent. I think that when a person doesn't feel like they are a, an active contributor to whatever that is, to their, to their family, to, their, to the society as a whole, to the village that they live in, whatever that is, that's when a lot of the uh, emotional and physical decline starts to happen, right? We see in blue zones, for example, that a sense of, com- of uh, contribution to the community is a big part of uh, what, what increases health span and lifespan in those communities. Am, am I correct? Yes, absolutely. And there's enough research showing that having a purpose in life or what we call yeah. ikigai yeah. In, in Japanese, you know, reason to wake up in that morning is to, is to yeah, why, why would you want to keep living, right? Because you have something to do. And those people in the blue zones are, you know, even in their older years, they, they're taking care of their grandkids or they're going to work in a shop or whatever. It's their ikigai, mm-hmm. their purpose and reason to wake up because, and that's what we all, we all need that. I think at any age, right? Yeah. <laughs> it, it, you could be 20 years old, just finished out of college and just say, well, what am I going to do with my life? Yeah. Well, we all need to have that purpose in life and no matter what age. And you do have, we do have enough research showing that people who do have that are living, are living longer. And so the, the, you know, in gerontology, we learn a lot about how we should encourage older adults to keep working and all that. But there was this discussion where, yeah, you know, keep working as long as you are happy yeah. with your job, right? Because there are people working in a really bad job. They're not happy. And if you tell them, you know, keep working there and they're in these horrible conditions that they don't like, I doubt they're going to live a long life. Yeah. So it is and and then the big problem is, you know, we will have a lot more older adults working, whether they like it or not, mm-hmm. because we are the, the the healthcare system isn't set up for us. Social security isn't set up for us. We don't have enough younger people putting into the pool uh, for older to take care of the older adults. Inflation costs are going up. So, you know, we were, Social Security was was designed where we were going to die in our 60s, right? So now we're living into our 80s. It's a big problem. So whether you like it or not, you need to make more money as you get older. So that's why it's very important to have some kind of a plan, right? Yeah. And, uh, and, and that's why it'd be ideal if you could shift, if you don't like your job, go find another one because you probably will have to keep working. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the uh, the immersion of second careers is is definitely the new the new trend. You know, the trend used to be like work and then find something you like to do because you don't need to work anymore. And now it's just find something you love doing as a as a as a new career because you you have to keep providing for yourself for your family. We see a lot of people that are you know, for example, in Israel where where I come from originally, we see a lot of people in their thirties that thirties that still live with their parents because, you know, the society as a whole has a hard time catching up with cost of living. But talking more about you being a nomad and the way that it translates into your health span, lifespan, and um, the way that you look, do you think that it contributes or how do you manage things like, you know, you travel so obviously community is something that that changes right or you know being so uh so active as far as like moving from a place to a place how does your you know self-care routine changes what what are some of the the lessons that you uh have learned 
taking care of yourself as a nomad? Oh, this is a, a good question. So when my husband and I decided to really embark on our nomad journey, this was a, a pre-pandemic mm -hmm. 2018, we, every one to four weeks, we were in a new country. Wow. And, uh, and I remember, you know, thinking about this, I was like, okay, we can do this, but I really got to figure out how <laughs> I'm going to keep, keep somewhat of a, a healthcare routine. Mm -hmm. And, and you can hack it. There's a lot of things you can do. Well, first of all, I have to be on board. I think anyone who's dragged into something like this kind of a lifestyle or doesn't want to do it is it's not going to impact their health in a positive way. So you have to do what you want to be doing. And I wanted to do this. So whenever I got to a new place, the first thing I did was look for the space where I will be meditating or finding a green space or a corner in the room or something where I can have a bit of quiet and silence. The second thing, I would go out and try to find a gym or a park, or if not, you know, the space in the hotel room, what, what, what tools can I use <laughs> to do some squats and, yeah. and lifts? And then the third thing I do is look for pretty much forage for food. <laughs> where am I going to buy my food or where am I going to eat? Mm -hmm. And searching for those health shops and healthy cafes and you know, that where can I get this? So those are the, the three important things that first thing I do every place I'd go. And I would, and I'd pretty much jump right into it because I had no time, yeah. right? If you <laughs> be somewhere just a week, I'm not, and this is a lifestyle. Now, if I were on vacation or something, it's totally different, but it's, this is a lifestyle. So I need to keep those routines and I like to keep those routines. It makes me happy and I feel much better yeah. knowing that I have these things in place. And I would have to do some research sometimes even before I flew in to the destination. And my husband knows me. He's the one who just books all the hotels and Airbnbs. And, and he, so he'll always look for a place with a gym if there, if it's possible. And, uh, and you know, or, or a park nearby where I can jump into and, and do some meditation or, or exercise and all that. So, mm -hmm. so yeah, you, you can, you just need a little bit of planning and it'll be, it's interesting you asked me this because I'm going to be a on a panel uh, at, uh, at USC and, mm -hmm. uh, I've been invited at my university to speak with someone else and in interview them about the challenges of traveling and staying healthy. And I think this person's position is, is that it's very unhealthy Yeah, and it depends on the perspective. And, and you mentioned community and that's a real big challenge for me in terms of aging, because we know uh, that community and your social life, this is is a huge impact on your health. And there's a, I think it's the, it's the longest study uh, ever done by Harvard, that yes. Harvard adult study. And that's been going on for, I think, 75 years or so, still ongoing, looking at, at these people. And they look at all the factors of their life in terms of smoking and lifestyle and their eating habits and their education and their blood pressure and everything. And the one thing that stood out, the reason why a lot of these people, you know, some of these people are living longer is because of their social connections, mm -hmm. their bonds with their friends and their family. So- this is this is super important. This is where I'm I'm going to have to keep building. I have a huge network because I travel so much, but I don't have those daily interactions yeah. that you have and that you need, especially when you get older and you think, who's got my back? Mm -hmm. If I fall down or if I'm struggling, I need to get to the hospital, who's going to help me if I need that? Mm -hmm. And or checking in on me once in a while, like that's what I can just – 
you you have that sense of security as, when you're in your 80s. And you can't imagine, I mean, I'm going to tell you, do you think, do you know how you're going to be when you're 80 years old? Good it's question. Hard to imagine, yeah. but we will be there if we are lucky, mm-hmm. right? And so that's where, and you don't just go move into a new community when you're 70 and go, I'm going to build all these relationships. It takes time. It takes years. It takes energy. It takes experiences yeah. through years and years. And so at some point I will have to get more settled somewhere and, and keep nurturing that community. I have several communities all around the world, but I'll have to probably choose one at some point and say, this is, this is it. I wanted to take a quick break for this episode to chat with you about our Young Goose skincare product and our special offer for our podcast listeners. Our products are the world's first biohacking skincare products. And what they aim to do is to reboot uh, your skin cells to a youthful state so they can correct the cellular damage that is accumulated over time. Our favorite products and the one that we recommend everyone to start with are is our care concentrated moisturizer that can be used as both a day and a night cream. What this product is really specially delivering to the skin is our NAD precursors that are nano-sized and lipolized. They are both NR and NMN. And what they aim to do is to fuel the repair processes that our skin engages in by activating also our sirtuins, which are our anti-aging genes or our longevity genes that are responsible for DNA repair and basically repairing who we are really as human beings. In order to do that in the most effective way, we combine it with our enhanced resveratrol, which is fermented resveratrol that allows resveratrol to be 50 times more bioavailable in the skin and actually non-toxic because most people don't know that resveratrol is actually toxic for the skin since the skin doesn't have the enzyme to break it down like our gut does. So by fermenting the the resveratrol and introducing the enzymes in the fermentation process, we can obviously make it non-toxic and 50 times more bioavailable. And Care Concentrated Moisturizer also has 10 more active ingredients that support those processes, such as CoQ10, PQQ, two forms of vitamin C, and even turmeric and B vitamins. This is the first product we recommend. The second is eye care, which is a version of care specifically for the eyes. It also contains our NAD precursors and also contains very, very advanced peptides or proprietary complex that includes GHKCU, a copper peptide that is very famous for its anti-aging abilities. The third product we recommend is our ProCare Serum. And that is a very special serum because it interacts with the mTOR pathway, which is a pathway that is very famous for its ability to affect how we age. So this product does a few things, but really what it does, it eliminates senescent cells, which are cells that harm our skin because our skin couldn't clear them very well. So it eliminates those, regenerates the skin. It stimulates the mitochondria with lilac uh, cell culture extract. And it also has a very strong and effective form of vitamin C that is well known to help the skin regenerate itself. Combining these three products, 
by first applying pro-care, then eye care, and then care will give you the best results you've ever experienced for your skin. And that we guarantee. If you would like to try these products, you can head over to younggoose.com to our website. And when checking out, please use the promo code PODCAST20 in all capital letters in order to get 20% off your first purchase. Again, head over to younggoose.com and use promo code PODCAST20 in all capitals for 20% off your first purchase. And now let's get back to the podcast. Do you think, so kind of to, to you know, because we're, we're coming towards the end of the, the our conversation, so maybe I'll ask a question that's a little bit more out there. Do you think ever the, um, the metaverse or something to that extent if it becomes you know as realistic and when i mean realistic also obviously the actual hardware right but i also mean the sense of our digital self as a bigger part of what we identify as ourselves right as as our identity do you think the metaverse could ever replace a real community Not in the same way. Not in the same I, way. I, not in the same. It helps, certainly helps to be able to see you right now yeah. in a video and have that connection. It's stronger than just listening to you. Mm -hmm. It's stronger than just receiving an email from you. So that's good. But just if I see you in person and you and I met in person yeah. and we felt that energy, mm -hmm. it's a chemistry yeah. and we cannot replace that. It just... I haven't experienced it. I don't, I, I, you know, it's, it's certainly the, better than nothing, mm -hmm. but you're, you know, I don't think hopefully people will not go under a rock and, and not never see other humans and that's it. But I'm going to tell you, this happens a lot with older adults and this is where loneliness and social isolation is a big deal. And we've covered a lot of this in my gerontology studies. Mm -hmm older adults because they are shoved to the side or because they lose their driver's license because they can't see so well or they have an illness or they don't hear anymore so they don't want to go into those social settings because they don't want to keep asking what what and they don't want to wear a hearing aid and so they start to pull themselves away from society mm -hmm. and if they're living if they living in the suburb and they don't have a car and they don't have access to a bus and it's a big problem and that's where things spiral out of control so yes loneliness can kill you, yeah. can shorten your lifespan. So we do uh, need to, you know, it's having, I'm sure those people who are lonely and socially isolated uh, have some, you know, connections with internet, but it's certainly not, I think, going to do the job in terms of actually seeing human beings. And there are many older adults and who the highlight of their day is just seeing the mailman. Mm -hmm. And that's not good enough. Yeah, definitely. Even though the, it begs the it begs the question, what what is better? Like, <laughs> it's kind of weird, but is it better for us to have more interaction? And obviously, it's a scale, but is it better for us to have more interactions? Let let's say these people in Bhutan, right, or people in homes here in the United States, like elderly homes. Is it better for us to have more constant interaction? But the the examples around us are are people with with real emotional and physical decline or less interactions obviously not only with a mailman but less interactions as a whole but those interactions still 
put us in a position to be a real active member of society or have the examples around us are of younger, more youthful people and our mind doesn't get the, the examples of shuffling the feed or whatever, whatever else um, it can get as a bad kind of nourishment to how it should move, move and act. I don't know what the balance is, but I think, yeah. It's, it, it's individual. It's bio-individual, right? Yeah. It's, it depends. So we can be socially isolated, but not lonely. Mm. And we can, you know, have tons of people around us, but feel lonely. Yeah. So it's the loneliness factor that's more important. So if you are, whether you're in a community with other adults, whether there it's a positive or negative experience or whether you're, you're alone at home, if you're feeling lonely, then that's got to change. Yeah. And it can doesn't matter where you're at, and that's where yeah we need to to pay attention to that because it's like a slow degradation you know and you don't see it kind of you don't see it it's like people who, you know you suddenly wake up and you're like my pants don't fit me anymore where did I gain all this weight you know <laughs> it just creeps up on yeah. you so we do need to to pay attention to that and if we want to then we we have to work now on those social skills. Uh, not everybody's as extroverted as you or me. Mm -hmm. And, and it's really hard for them to go out and, and take, take part in an activity. And so, you know, you need to practice, I think now sooner than later, but I'm a time when I have a question for you yeah. I, I, as a gerontologist and, and a nomad, I I've been to Israel several times, mm -hmm. but I want to hear your perspective. And I, I visited with not really with the gerontology hat on. So I'm wondering what, what is what is it like in Israel in terms of older adults and are they a part of society? Are they revered? Are they pushed to the side? What's it like there? It's funny that you're asking me because uh, you know I was smiling and I was just thinking about my grandfather, which I'm going to get to in a second. But just obviously Israel is a big driver in the ger gerontology in their ger gerontological research community, right? We we have a the Weizmann Institute and the Hebrew University in Jerusalem, which which publish a lot of the studies in health span and longevity, whether it's hyperbaric chamber, whether it is like detecting uh, brain bleeding, hot and cold exposure, many of the things that people hear and get in, in, in research that is being quoted comes out of Israel. So from that point of view, that's one thing that, you know, that would answer your question. We are an active part or a contributor in, in, in the overall knowledge. Now, as far as Israel as a society that, and how we treat the elder, el elderly, that's also complicated. Israel is, a, is obviously a safe haven in air quotes for the Jewish diaspora, right? And what it means is, is, and I can tell you this as an immigrant, is that when you move from one place to another, you're like a tree that has left a lot of its uh, mycology behind, right? A lot of the, a lot of the, um, the fertile ground where you grew up is now being taken away from you. And obviously I see my parents like once a year and I need to build new social connections, etc. And a lot of the same thing happens in Israel. We have a few programs to socialize Holocaust survivors and people who moved from the Eastern Bloc to Israel because a lot of them have no one in the world. They may, maybe they were married and uh, one of the and the spouse died again maybe they were they they were just plopped somewhere and and they didn't make the right social connections but there it is described as a national problem in Israel loneliness among the elderly 
the reason I was uh, smiling and, and thinking my, my, about my grandfather is because the opposite is true within kibbutz society. So a kibbutz is basically a um, communities. You can call it a commune. It's a little bit more complicated if, any, if someone doesn't know what a kibbutz is. But basically, it's people who, were, who moved to Israel you know, anywhere from, from the 30s, 40s to, to the 70s, 80s. And start, and they were sympathetic to the to the uh, socialist ideas ideology, but wanted to live in Israel. So they started those socialistic villages, which had anywhere from like fifty to five hundred thousand members. And uh, I was born in one of those. Uh, and my grandfather, oh. yeah, and my grand my grandfather uh, lived there. My grandfather was one of the uh, people who founded the kibbutz that I grew up in, and. Um, he uh, also died in the kibbutz, and he was the absolute opposite of what we're talking here. He had a community until the day he died, and he had no perception or very low low perception of the fact of his decline. So he was he insisted to go in and work until his late eighties. He was still driving his uh, car and his golf cart until his uh, mid nineties. And the reason I was smiling is because he. <laughs> He uh, definitely scratched some cars with his car and golf cart out of <laughs> inflated belief in his uh, in his uh, skills into his nineties. Yeah, but and obviously, you know, I, I can consider myself blessed for my genetics because I, I had uh, my my elders uh, died late in in their late nineties, but it is also because. They had a great community to uh, to lean on. Uh, yeah, so I can say it from personal experience that that this helps mentally, physically, uh, whatever. But again, Israel is very diverse, and, and in bigger cities, it is it is a, a problem to the other to the other end of the spectrum. Interesting. Yeah. I, I'm I'm pleased to hear that. It's it it is it is good to hear that the community is plays such a big role in how long we live and how, and the quality of life that we have, because it was a real disappointment for me when, when I was studying gerontology is that the people who are living longer and healthier mm -hmm. are the people who have money. And so this is really unfair in that sense is because we can afford better medical care. We can afford better food. We can, we have, we are better educated uh, and all of this, you know, helps us make better health decisions. So education, I think is, is a real big player as well, but it almost, you know, it means that it, it kind of explains a little bit the Latino paradox. Mm -hmm. If you heard of that? Yeah. Latino women, at least in the U.S., are the longest living people yeah. in the U.S. And, you, you know, generally we'd say it's a white woman who lives longer, but it's those Latinos who are living a little bit longer. And, and, uh, and that's just, it could be maybe because of the community is so much stronger uh, within the Latino community. They're, they're the family, the bonds are very super important. I'm wondering if that community and social aspect is is making that them that live at an extra extra long so as far as i know the latino paradox it, it only relates to to latino immigrants right it doesn't relate to like yes third. yes so yes. i i have a different theory as far as um immigrants and immigrants from different countries uh go 
especially because mm-hmm. you know the Israeli community is is considered one of the most successful immigrant communities within the US you also have the um again like the Latino is a big big section but uh, let's talk here in Miami Cuban community is extremely successful and uh, obviously the Indian community where when we lived in California had had the same not only reputation but statistics to prove it and I believe that all of those communities what they have in common is the belief in their way of family structure their their the belief in their inherent let's call it like social structure and the reason that they immigrated to the US is the belief that the US has a better opportunities to offer them and i can see and again no offense to to any other community but being very interested in it seeing other communities that or individuals i should say actually because it's not like i saw whole communities but individuals that came to the US because the US they thought that the US had a better social and uh, structural norms that they wanted to adopt normally also experience disappointment and also experience loneliness long term because it's no secret that our uber uh, work oriented and um, socially depleted society here does not drive uh, strong connections communities etc so I think there is something there about Latino communities and the reason they chose to live in the US and kind of the um, the perception of what they want to keep together and what they want to adopt from the U- from the US that makes ma- yeah makes them the ultimate candidate right they were they love their families and because they love their families they came to the US to get a better opportunity to serve their families or or from lack of my my better ability to explain myself. I don't know if it's clear. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I absolutely agree. And and there is a certain profile for that person who decides to leave their country mm-hmm. and go to live in a completely foreign land. You need to be a certain type and you need to be resilient and because it's not going to be easy. Mm-hmm. And so I'm wondering if there's, you know, there is there is some talk about, yeah, the the t- the profile of that person already giving them a predisposition for living a longer life because you need a lot of chutzpah to <laughs> go and leave, right? <laughs> yeah, definitely, definitely. So just to kind of maybe finish on a on a nice note and in a hopeful note, we did talk about your experience with healthy habits and traveling. What is, and now you are in Marbella, Spain, and you just came back from Portugal. What are some of your favorite health discoveries that you've discovered, not even recently, but from your travels in the last last couple of years? What did you see that we are not not necessarily unaware of, but less, we have integrated less into our health habits here in America? And that it, that you've learned through your travels. Now, there are two things come to mind. The first thing that came to mind was I used to live in Hong Kong, and I remember every every morning around six a.m. the parks are full of people wow. exercising or practicing Tai Chi or doing a dance class or learning how to swords or karate. I mean, it just was incredible. Mostly older adults mm-hmm. and. 
And that gave them a reason to wake up in the morning. It gave them some social time. It gave them their vitamin D when they just got outside, gives them some exercise. It gives them so many great benefits. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we, we don't, it's, and it's either free or very low cost. It doesn't, it really, we don't need a gym. We don't need a gym membership. There's a lot of people who don't like going to the gym (laughs) and, uh, and you don't see many older adults going to the gym. And so maybe this is a little intimidating as well. So I would say that's one, the first thing that came to my mind. The other thing that came to my mind was, is I've been in Europe for a long time and we definitely have a slower pace here in terms of taking a break uh, for lunch, extended lunches. We don't eat at the desk. We don't carry a coffee, you know, down the street. Like you don't see people doing that, especially in in Hong Kong. And you would never see anybody eating and walking at the same time. There's not even garbage cans in some of these places where Mm -hmm. they're just because people don't do that. And actually in Japan, I remember there, there's a vending machine. People would stop and eat, stay at the vending machine. There was a trash can right next to the vending machine, but they wouldn't actually walk and do that. So mm-hmm. we stop when we're eating. We stop and we sit down. We you know take our coffee in an actual ceramic mug mm-hmm. or cup. <laughs> yeah, that's not- the interesting story that I have to tell people about um, about Switzerland when I uh, when I had some meetings with a few to Switzerland, and I remember I had to kill time. I went to Starbucks uh, in Switzerland, and they served me coffee in a uh, in a ceramic uh, mug, and <laughs> it blew my mind. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's yeah, that's beautiful. So, listen, Zora, this was an amazing conversation. I super appreciate that the time that you gave us, and I think there there is someone should listen to this conversation a couple of, couple of times in order to to you know to absorb everything that we've that we've covered here. So, I just thank you so much for the time you you gave us. Oh, it's a pleasure. And I will send you some of those studies that I I mentioned. I just can't remember the names, the dates on top of my head, but you can at least include them in the show notes and people can can do some of their own research because it's it's quite fascinating. Yes. So Zora, just to um just to kind of sum sum up, as anyone who's listened to us can figure out, you have your you know, wealth of knowledge and you are living live you're living it. Um and that is that is why I'd love for people to kind of follow your journey and and your the information to put out there, which is incredible. So please tell us where they can find you, uh, the, the podcast, everything that they need to know in order to immerse themselves in the uh, Zora the Explorer experience. Oh, thank you. Yes, everything is hack my age. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the website, it's the Instagram, it's the Facebook. I have a, uh, a Biohacking Women 50 Plus Facebook group where we have a lot of chatter and you can ask questions. And I have a new program coming out in November called the Energy Reboot Program for Women Over 50 because I'm focused on older women. And uh, and that's where you can find everything. And I'm very accessible. You can always shoot me a message on any of those platforms. Sounds amazing. And obviously, these, these links are going to be in the show notes. So thank you again, Zora. Uh, And I wish you a beautiful rest of your uh, week and to everyone listening as well. Thank you. Take care.